Our reading this morning is from Psalm 4, from the New Living Translation. Answer me when I call to you, O God, who declares to be innocent. Free me from my troubles. Have mercy on me and hear my prayer. How long will you people ruin my reputation? How long will you make groundless accusations? How long will you continue your lies? You can be sure of this. The Lord set apart the godly for himself. The Lord will answer when I call to him. Don't sin by letting anger control you. Think about it overnight and remain silent. Offer sacrifices in the right spirit and trust the Lord. Many people say, who will show us better times? Let your face smile on us, Lord. You'll give me greater joy than those who have abundant harvests of grain and new wine. In peace, I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, will keep me safe. Brilliant. Let's um, turn to those verses that that, uh, Jeff just read beautifully to us. And um, we're, we're really picking up um, this song here, this, this psalm, is on the theme of rest. We've been going through over the last few weeks and we'll continue over the next few weeks um, various psalms that hit on sort of various elements of the cry of our hearts. And um, this one here is particularly pertinent for me personally, as you just heard, uh, the subject of rest. But um, I'm uh, very confident that uh, this is not just a sermon to myself, it's to be a sermon to you as well from God's words. We're going to be thinking about rest. And uh, um, we're going to ask ourselves, first of all, why is, why is rest difficult? Why is it a struggle? Why was it a struggle for the psalmist particularly? Um, then, secondly, then, we're going, to be, we're going to be looking at this, this song, and we're going to be asking, well, how does God lead you and I to rest? Uh, what are the ways that he does it? And thirdly and finally, we'll be thinking, I suppose, a bit more practically, how do we grasp the gift of rest? Uh, what, what, what response do we need to have in order to uh, receive rest from God? Um, so first of all, then, why, why do you think rest is a struggle? Why is it a struggle for the, the psalmist who wrote this, this, this song, uh, most likely King, King David? Do you notice, by the way, I don't, is it on your sheets at the top? It says, for the choir director, did you, did you include that bit? No, okay, uh, it's okay. Um, it's actually part of the inspired text of Scripture as well. That uh, Most psalms have this little uh, sort of heading. It says, to the choir director, a psalm of David to be accompanied by string instruments. And throughout the psalm as well, there's a couple of little uh, words. It says interlude or sila, uh, depending on what uh, version of the Scripture you're reading. And I'm just bringing that up to your, to your attention at this stage um, because it's important you understand that these are, these are songs, and they were songs that were written to be used by uh, the worshipping community in, in Israel. And so you've got often these sort of directions about uh, the, the tune that they should be using or, you know, the sort of instruments that this works best with. And uh, bear that in mind because um, these are prayers, these are, these are, these are poems, they're deeply personal, um, but they're designed to be used in the worship of, of, of the church and the worship of the people of God. And, uh, you know, they're, they're so, they're so gen- general and, and broad that, that at various times in our lives, certain psalms will just really uh, ch- chime with us, you know. And so maybe this is one for you today, this, this cry for rest, this prayer for rest. Um, you know, we can see, can't we, as, as the song begins, um, 
the psalmist is anything but restful. He's not enjoying the rest of God. In fact, quite the opposite. He is anxious. He says in verse 1, answer me when I call to you. Um, free me. You know, help me. Have mercy on me. This does not sound like someone who is chilled. Um, he, he's pretty afraid, isn't he? He's panicking. Uh, he is not enjoying the rest of God at this stage. Well, why is that? Well, he says in verse 2, I am under assault. He says, how long? He addresses this sort of undefined people. He said, how long will you people ruin my reputation? He doesn't conf- uh, confirm who you people are, but another, another scripture translation, um, instead of you people, says, oh, men of rank, you know, people of significance, people who, who, who have a voice. How long will you be on like this? these sort of influences within the community, so to speak. It seems to be <clears throat> from this text that they are seeking to destroy and to trash the reputation of the psalmist. He says in verse 2, for example, how long will you people ruin my reputation? How long will you make groundless accusations? How long will you continue in your lives? Just get the feeling that he's under this sort of sustained continual attack. They're speaking ill of him. They're turning opinion against him. And yet, he's confident at some level that these attacks are are groundless, it says. Groundless accusations. They're unjustified. They're not called for, and yet they do it anyway. And today we might use words, biblical words, like slander, gossip, spin, whatever it takes. And you can kind of understand why the psalmist finds it difficult to rest with all this going on continually. His voices are loud, right? They're powerful. And, and, and they're stirring up the community. They're stirring up discontent. So that's the first reason why the psalmist is really struggling to, to rest. But the second reason, there's probably a second group, a, a more broad group of people we see down in verse 6. Many people, not you people, many people who will show us, uh, sorry, say, who will show us better times? Perhaps the second group are egged on by the first group. We don't know. But there seems to be this sort of spirit of discontentment, which is growing, unsettling many people. People asking, is this it? Is this all we've got? They're saying of the psalmist, he's not doing a very good job. He should be doing more. What about this? What about that? Who will show us better times? They're not satisfied with the present situation. And so the spirit of discontentment spreads. I remember one day attending many years ago a, a church planting conference and there was a flyer being passed out by one of the, uh, the churches that were involved in this group. And it was advertising uh, like a church planting internship you know, to come and learn the skills of what it is to, to plant a church and all that. And on the, on the thing itself, um, a little A5 flyer, it said, come and learn at so-and-so church what it is to plant a church. Then it went on to say, you'll be given experience. You'll receive training and an opportunity to pioneer new churches to the glory of God. You will be misrepresented. You will be discouraged. You will be slandered and frustrated. It will be slow and painful work but Jesus is worth it. Apply now. (laughs) 
I've, I've pastored myself and led in various church contexts, various types of churches, and I found this to be true across the board. It comes with a job. Over the years, I think I've probably poured out much time dealing with people's mismatched expectations, people saying, it's not what I thought it would be. Not growing quick enough. It's not what I want. Who will show us better times? And it's exhausting. Isn't it, Jeff? Isn't it, Chris? It's exhausting. Maybe you yourself struggle to rest these days. And of course, there may be other reasons for that in your life. Maybe worry or anxiety, pressure from some situation or other, some life circumstances that are just keeping you up at night. Maybe it's just the pace of life in general that's just so fast that it's almost impossible to slow down and be at peace. Maybe for you it's responsibilities and pressures with work or family. The list is endless, isn't it? These defeaters to rest. But ultimately, I think all of these things are similar to what the psalmist is talking about here. They are all voices of influence in your life. Speaking. Spinning stuff. Distracting you. Knocking you off course. Robbing you of joy. And you spend vast amounts of energy trying to respond, trying to counteract, trying to keep it up, trying to satisfy. And it's just frankly impossible. Rest is a struggle. The bottom line seems to be this. When those voices or influences grow louder than the voice of God, you will have no rest. Why is rest a struggle? Secondly, though, thank God, how God leads you to rest. He is the good shepherd. He leads you to rest. And I love, I love this psalm. Um, admittedly, admittedly, I picked it because of the last verse without reading the bits above, but yeah, we'll go with it anyway. And you know what? Uh, it's God's, God's goodness. Um, and the more I examine this and the more we examine this together, the more we just see how good God is to those who need rest. What does he do? There's five actions of God that are sort of woven through the song like a tapestry. The first action is this. He chooses you. If you want to understand and, and how God brings you to rest, know that he chooses you. Verse 3, for example. You can be sure of this. The Lord set apart the godly for himself. If you belong to God, it's because he has chosen you. He has set you apart. The message translation of the Bible puts it like this. Look who got picked by God. Favor, you know. Uh, you are picked, you are chosen by God, but note this, it is for himself. He says to his people, I want you with me. I have chosen you to be with me. There's a, a famous line in 2 Timothy 2, should be on the screen behind me. The Lord knows those who are his. He chooses you and he knows that you belong to him. So these gossips, 
These accusers who lie and distract, they might be able to convince other people, but they will not convince God. God knows the truth. He has set you apart. He has chosen you. So there is no need in your life to work to impress him or to catch his eye or to cause him to delight in you. He has chosen you. It is settled. It is binding. It is eternal. And that starts to unlock rest within your soul. But there's more. The second action woven into this psalm of God. Not only does he choose you, but he declares you innocent. He says, answer in verse 1. He says, answer me when I call to you, O God, who declares me innocent. It's linked to that first action. He chooses you. He declares you innocent. Versus the lies, versus the slander, versus the ulterior motives that others might come and believe about you. God declares you innocent. Not guilty. The accusations against you are false. The theological term for this you may have heard before is justification. He declares you innocent. But what if you're, what if you're not innocent? Or what if you're innocent in this particular thing that they're talking about, but you're not innocent in other ways? Or what if the stories that are repeated about you are unkind, but they're not untrue? According to the gospel, the, the, the Christian good news, the Apostle Paul writes, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Innocent, if you're in Christ Jesus. This is utterly scandalous. This is so scandalous what the gospel teaches us. Because it is saying that if you are in Christ, that is if you have faith in him, if you trust in him, in what he said and what he's done, on the basis of that, God declares you innocent of the things you haven't done, but of course the things you have done. He says innocent, not guilty. Scandalous. We saw this last week, we called it the great exchange, right? Your sin on him. He went to the cross with your sin. He dealt with it fully. And so on the basis of Christ's work for you, God declares you innocent, righteous. We'll return to Romans 8, a section written many centuries later by the Apostle Paul and actually fits so well alongside Psalm 4. The Apostle Paul is reflecting on this scandalous gospel. And he asks a series of rhetorical questions in one of the greatest chapters in the entire Bible. So I'm going to read these rhetorical questions with you, and you're going to give me your rhetorical answer, because I want you to understand and, and own how scandalous, how tremendous the gospel is. So he writes, so hopefully it's on there. Next slide. There we go. Your job is to read out the bit with faith, all right? And victory, no one. That's your job, those two words. What then shall we say to these things, these condemnations? If God is for us, who can be against us? No one. 
Who shall bring a charge against God's chosen ones? No one. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? No one. Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, is the one who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? No one. one. The love of Christ. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. He declares you innocent. So rest. The third action then, just building, just building all the time, this sort of train or this trail developing, is that God listens and responds. If you want to find rest, he listens and responds. He calls you, he declares you innocent, but that's not it. It doesn't leave you there. He, he, he wants you. He, he wants a real relationship with you. We're together now, he says. We, we can call God our friend. Scandalous. And he communicates back and forth, the divine and the human. The, the psalmist gets this. He says in, in verse 1, for example, answer me, O God. He's calling out and he's expecting the Lord. But see in verse 3, he's just growing in confidence. You can be sure of this. The Lord will answer when I call to him. Just growing in that. The more, the more he's reflecting on this stuff, the more he's allowing uh, these actions of God to sort of take place in his life, so to speak, the more he's growing in his confidence of his relationship with God in just a few verses. He's confident that God will speak to me. He will listen and respond. And again, I think when we understand this and when we, when we use this, when we, when we cry out to God, just like he's doing here, when we speak our heart with God, we start to experience rest. Many of our prayers start just like this. They start with a cry, a groan. Oh, God, help me. But do you see that as the psalm progresses, as he processes these things before the Lord, it's sort of transformative. That's not how he ends up, is it? it, it he, he ends with confidence. Prayer does this. It's not just one-way traffic. you just sort of firing off to God. He, he will speak back to you. And sometimes in that very moment, during prayer, it is the spiritual power at work when it comes to, to prayer. So that's why I often encourage uh, our prayer times. I'll, I'll say, let's pray with our ears open. Because God will speak. He will respond. So listen to him as he, as he listens to you. Third action. He smiles upon you. Verse 6, let your face smile on us, Lord. God smiles on his kids. You know, you can receive and even benefit from those actions in the first three. God chooses you, he declares you innocent, and even listens and responds to you. And yet, you and I can still perceive God as if he is some kind of headmaster or some boss at work, you know, who says, look, I'll let you off this time. 
but you just behave, I've got my eye on you. you know, we, we, we understand generally that God is all-powerful. And he sort of, sometimes we think, well, he saves me, but sort of grudgingly. You know, oh, there he goes again, okay, have a bit more grace. Like he has to. But you, you just have to understand that that's not how God sees you. Because he, he smiles on you. It's just this beautiful image, this love that he has for you, his pleasure upon you, his delight upon you. It, it warms your heart. He's, he's no headmaster or angry boss. His delight is in you. It warms your heart. Often here at Foundation, as we close out our service, we want to allow God's word to have the final word in our worship, and we want that to be the resounding thing that, that, that tinkles around in our brain as we, as we leave. And it's called the benediction. It's the good word spoken over us. And often we use the, what they call the Aaronic blessing, the blessing of Aaron from Numbers chapter 6, way back at the beginning of the story of the people of God. And these are the words, and we'll use them later, actually. May the Lord bless you and protect you. May the Lord smile on you and be gracious to you. May the Lord show you his favor and give you his peace. That's what he does. The face of God beams at his kids. So I just want to encourage you this morning to, to stop and rest in the, the warmth of that, that smile and all that comes with it. final action of God and how he brings you peace and rest number five he fills you with joy look down to verse seven you have filled me with a greater joy than those who have abundant harvests of grain and new wine greater joy abundant joy unassailable joy in the old King James version it calls it joy unspeakable you, you've been chosen by God you've been declared innocent by God and, and through faith in Jesus you receive the, the spirit of God it's called adoption you know God is your father Romans 8 again says elsewhere the spirit bears witness to your spirit that you're a child, child of God and, and when that clicks I'm a child of God then you become aware and you get filled with joy unspeakable. Just imagine with me for a moment a, a father walking with his child and they're just walking along side by side and she's holding his hand and she feels safe and she feels familiar, she knows him, she knows his voice. And you, if you ask the child, she'll say, yeah, I know my father loves me. But just imagine for a moment if the father sweeps up the child, wraps his arms around her, draws her in close, and says, I love you, I love you, I love you. Then she will know that love. Then she will be swept up in that love. Then she will know that she knows that she knows that she knows that she's loved by God, the Father. 
joy unspeakable. Joy beyond even the most wonderful material prosperity, the abundant harvests of grain and new wine. Joy beyond remarkable church growth. Joy beyond ministry success. Joy beyond even the greatest circumstances in life. God fills you with that joy. You can be swept up in that joy. You have given me greater joy, you can say. And in that you can rest. We've, under, well, we've tried to understand together why is rest difficult? We've been seeing here from, from the text how uh, God leads us to rest. So thirdly and finally, I just want to think for a few moments with you about how we then grasp the gift of rest. How do we add, what do we do? How do we take it in, take it, take it deep down? Or in other words, how do, you, how do we swallow the medicine to allow it to get in and do its work? How do we get to verse 8? In peace I will lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, keep me safe. How do we get there? And the answer, quite frankly, is do whatever it takes to listen to God and receive his gifts. And that's very vague and very general, but do whatever it takes to listen to God and receive his gifts. The busier we get, and let's face it, the pace of life for many of us is insane. The busier we get, the more essential this becomes. Pretty much all of us in this room, that means slowing down the pace to be with God. So how do we grasp the gift of, of rest? Do whatever it takes to slow down. Listen to him. Let me just offer a few suggestions here about how you and I can build moments of sanctuary in our lives that sort of allows us to, to give pause and stop and receive the gift of rest that he wants to give you. And we can think of those in terms of daily, weekly, and monthly rest. Maybe there's nothing new in any of this stuff. I don't think it is. This may be a reminder or an encouragement to, to get back on. Daily rest. Slowing down, building in time, at least once a day, to dwell and rest with God. It is essential. Allow time for these truths, such as the ones that we're, 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 we're reading here in Psalm 4. Allow time for these truths to mingle within us, to do their work inside of us. You know, time to read scripture. Take a psalm a day, for example. <clears throat> time to pray. Time to worship. Once a day, it is essential. I've heard someone say, if, 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 if you knew that by taking a particular tablet a day, you will prevent uh, this cancer that you've been diagnosed with. If you just take that once a day for the rest of your life, you'll be completely healthy. And, and so... Why, why would you not take that? Why would you not want to be healthy? Why would you not want to give yourself life? I consider spending time with God and resting in his presence more important than that. Why would you not want to be healthy? Why would you not want to receive life? It's going to look different for each of us, I know that. It must include somewhere along the line, scripture reading, reflection. There's a whole bunch of apps that you can use. Lectio 365 is very good. It gives you some scripture, uh, some direction, some reflection time, just leads you towards prayer. It's wonderful. Um, there's, there's other options as well, you know, Bible in one year, for example. Anything that's just going to help you 
So not sitting there thinking, oh, where do I go? What scripture shall I read today? Anything that's going to help guide you. For, for me, I, I love this old book here. Jeff has maybe seen one of these before. This is a bit of a tatty old one. I love it. It just smells old. And it is old. It's like pre-war. Uh, probably the Second World War. It's the Book of Common Prayer. Um, and there's a, there's, a, there's a prayer in it that I just love to read, particularly on a Sunday night. I'm going to read it to you. Uh, if, if you're a preacher or a teacher, you'll know how this feels. And this is the prayer. It's kind of old-fashioned words. Grant God, we pray, that the words that we have heard this day with our outward ears may, through your grace, be so engrafted inwards in our hearts that they might bring forth in us the fruits of good living to the honor and praise of your name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. That's what I do from time to time, just to rest, to say, Lord God, I've done the preaching, I've done all that, I've sown the seeds, come Holy Spirit, apply it, and then I go to bed. Maybe something like that would help you too. Daily, anyway, slow down. Um, Weekly, enjoy weekly rest. Yes, every day, carving it out weekly. Typically, Christians have understood Sunday, the Lord's Day, as it's known, as that day of rest. Um, a daily gathering, a day, the day of gathering, of worshipping God, of being built up, of, of, of fellowshipping together, of encouraging one another, of enjoying God's presence together. Wonderful. And I really think that in our generation we should recover the vision of rest, rest days, particularly uh, the, the Sunday gathering. It should be, in my view, a break from all other days that we need to practice slowing down, and being with God and enjoying him together. And so I think practically for many of us, that will mean avoiding work where possible, even avoiding certain leisure activities insofar as they might block or distract you from resting in God. Practice weekly rest. Makes good sense to do that on the Lord's Day. Look, I'm not getting legalistic. Don't hear me. Uh, That's not what I'm trying to say. I'm not what you would call a strict Sabbatarian, that you can't go out, you can't watch TV, you can't spend money. That's not how I see things. But I think in general, our generation, we devalue deep rest. And I think that the Lord's Day, the Sunday gathering offers that. And it takes a whole day. And I admit, if you've got kids, young kids, it is a challenge because we've got to keep them occupied and keep them you know, interested and all that. But we can, I think, over time, help them to discover and delight in rest and worship, and these are rhythms that we can set to play now, so that when they get old and when they're older and they're, 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 they're 100 miles an hour, uh, they understand what it is to slow down and be with God. And, and as parents, if you're a parent, you get to model that. Um, you get to be an example. It's awesome. Weekly rest. Thirdly, finally, and then we're almost done. Monthly rest. I was going to put seasonal rest, but I think that's too vague, and I think seasonal will be like, oh, no, I'm not bothered with that. Uh, monthly rest, I think, is essential as well. Um, I don't think it's in Scripture, so I'm not, I'm not putting that on you in the Lord and saying, this is God's Word. But I just think it's good practice to, to embrace this uh, once a month or once a term or something like that, to allow the deeper work of God to continue. as another level um, in your soul. It's often neglected. Um, we might choose time or a day or so to fast, you know, to deny yourself for a day or two of all food, of some food, of coffee, of treats, or whatever it is. Uh, fast from your phone, fast from social media, fast from TV, whatever it is. 
fasting clears space, right? It just, just clears the noise and allows you to focus on God and, and hear his voice more clearly. Fasting is definitely helpful. Maybe your retreat day here and there wouldn't go amiss. Get on Airbnb, get a cheap deal. Uh, get to a conference, anything like that. You know, again, it's just about building moments of sanctuary and rest in God so we can draw near, we can listen, we can be refreshed. I hope these are helpful. These are just practical pointers I've picked up over the years. I, I want for everybody, I want for my family, I want for me to get to verse 8. To be able to say, in peace, I will lie down and sleep. For you alone, O Lord, will keep me safe. Amen. Rest in him. Let's, let's pray. Do you want to stand? Let's pray.